So we just keep your finger in Deuteronomy 16. We have a couple of little things we want to just to remind ourselves about. Uh, last week we have, uh, over the last week or so, we talked about the emergent church and the problems with the emergent church, and, uh, which is creeping in all over the place. But uh, I had this uh, bit of information from Roger Oakland, and it was about ecumenism ultimately points towards a common Eucharist, the Pope tells Christians. Fifteen leaders of the Australian church, you know, the Pope is in Australia at the moment, and uh, 15 leaders of the Australian Christian church met the Pope in an ecumenical event held in St. Mary's Cathedral Crypt on Friday morning. In his address to the church leaders, Pope Benedict XVI called on them not to view doctrine as divisive, since that view can prevent Christians from working to improve the world. Archbishop of Sydney, Cardinal George Pell, represented the Catholic Church. The Reverend Robert Forsyth was present for the Anglican Church. Leaders representing the Syrian Orthodox, Maronite Catholics, Indian Orthodox, Chinese Methodist, the Lutheran and Uniting Churches were also present and some others. The Pope delivered a short address to the leaders, praising their commitment to the ecumenical movement citing the covenant signed in 2004 by the members of the National Council of Churches in Australia. This document recognises a common commitment, set of goals, and acknowledges points of convergence without glossing over differences, said the Pope. While baptism is the starting point for ecumenical dialogue, the Pope said that the road of ecumenism ultimately points towards a common celebration of the Eucharist. We can be sure that a common Eucharist one day would only strengthen our resolve to love and serve one another in imitation of our Lord. For this reason, a candid dialogue concerning the place of the Eucharist, stimulated by a renewed and attentive study of Scripture, patristic writings, that's the writings of the fathers, and documents from across the two millennia of Christian history will undoubtedly help to advance the ecumenical movement and unify our witness to the world. Because they put tradition on at least an equal base, uh, basis as the word of God. The ecumenical movement has, the Pope observed, reached a critical juncture. And it went on and on. And that is uh, what's happening. It's going to enter into eventually a one world church. And we can see it happening before our eyes. But it was the fact that uh, he had said uh, about ecumenism and the celebration of the Eucharist and the fact that we have to go back to scripture and the, patrist the patristic writings and that's what's happening in the emergent church. They are all wanting to go back to the Desert Fathers. To, it's called the ancient future movement within the church. And they, they are going back to the Desert Fathers and from the Desert Fathers copying what they did rather than going back to scripture. And McLaren and all these fellows in the uh, emergent church, that's what they're doing. And 
I spoke about this last Sunday and we mentioned Benedict and uh, the other chap Ignatius Loyola and the people in the emergent church are going back to these kind of people and these are not Roman Catholics these are people who professedly are evangelical Christians but they're going back to these ancient fathers people like uh, Eugene Peterson who wrote the the, uh, the message people like that they are all now promoting these desert fathers and I looked uh, at a chap here who sends me bits and pieces from time to time a fellow called Gary Gilly he's a pastor of a church in America and he's looked into these uh, doctrines that the Benedictines have and what these chaps are promoting is that we should too go back to these desert fathers and see what they have to give to us and the, the, the structure that the Benedict he gave to his followers and the Benedictines then uh, still carry on this you know when we were kids we used to go and uh, play rugby in various colleges and quite often we'd go to a, a Benedictine school and you'd have all the priests walking around the, the, the perimeter of the place reading their, their, their missiles we used to wonder why they were doing this you know they're going around reading I mean, you've seen it dozens of times and this is why this is why because this is where I read it the divine office consisted of praying over 150 psalms every week plus other readings from scripture writings of Christian authors hymns and prayers the divine office is composed of eight set times of prayer one nocturnal and seven offices of the day in which certain prayers are recited and prayed so there are eight times they have to do these set prayers during the day and that's why they were always walking around reading their missiles because they had to do this Robert Benson the author of In Constant Prayer which is part of Thomas Nelson's The Ancient Practices series he assumed, assures us that the divine office reaches back to the beginning of the human race has been practiced by the people of God ever since and is even being prayed by Jesus to the Father at this time it's unbelievable in fact the divine office is practiced throughout Jewish history is the product of man's imagination not an inspired mandate from God our Lord has certainly called us to be people devoted to prayer but he neither gives us nor demands from us a prescribed set of prayers to be recited by rote at set times of the day and you know until recently not many people took particular note outside Roman Catholicism not many people took any notice of these oh young fellows just wonder what the fellows were reading and uh, even though we were, some of us were Christians that time we never thought, thought of just reading the Bibles but they were doing this divine uh, rota that had been set down by Benedict but now uh, and, and the funny thing a lot of these orders were being reduced in numbers in, in Ireland at the moment you know, they can't get enough priests there's a shortage of priests in Ireland which is incredible when you think of it but now it's the Protestant churches that are going back 
to these liturgies, which is amazing. Gilly says these new forms found in both Protestant and Catholic circles consist of those who have connected themselves to some aspect of monastic living while remaining in the world. Now the other chap who they say we should follow uh, and look at him for a minute, Ignatius Loyola. He was the he formed the Jesuits. Jesuits are the army. They're the, the real soldiers of the Catholic Church. You be careful of the Jesuits. Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercises is one of the most influential guidebooks for directing us in listening. That Eugene Peterson says that, the guy who wrote the message, he says Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises is one of the most influential guidebooks for directing us in listening, listening to God that is. Gregory Boyd, he goes further, I and many others have found Ignatius's spiritual exercises <clears throat> to be the most powerful tool for helping us grow in our walk with God. And said, so these are not Roman Catholics. These are chaps who people want to put down as being evangelical Christians. Which I don't believe they are, but people regard them as that. These, as he says, Gilly says, these are powerful endorsements by well-known evangelical spokesmen. Ignatius was a Roman Catholic monk, and there's a thing called the Counter-Revolution in the 16th century, and he was one of those. Uh, he formed the Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits. <clears throat> and their website says about Ignatius Loyola, the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola are a month-long program of meditations, prayers, considerations, and contemplative practices that help Catholic faith become more fully alive in the everyday life of contemporary people. It is a set it is set out in a brief manual or handbook, sparse, taciturn, and practical. It presents a formulation of Ignatius's spirituality in a series of prayer exercises, thought experiments, and examinations of consciousness. None of these things put us into a different state of consciousness. Designed to help a retreatant, usually with the aid of a spiritual director, to experience a deeper conversion into life with God in Christ. They, they, it's, they are deeper, they're all into experience, not necessarily the Word of God. To allow our personal stories to be interpreted by being consumed, subsumed in a story of God. The spiritual, he goes on to say here, the spiritual exercises are basically a means to expedite the experience of classical mysticism. Mysticism, as found in Eastern forms, Kabbalah, the Jewish form, New Age, Roman Catholicism, all these things were being practiced and we were unaware of them. The monastic system was mystical. And it included purgation, illumination, and union, and all the rest of it. We haven't time to go into all these things, but we need to be very careful of these type of things which are being pushed by the ancient future movement in the church. Last week I read out an article 
of Christianity today when they said this is the way ahead for churches in the future. And you know, this has been going on for ages. I, I have a, a couple of bits of paper here. Well, here it is. <clears throat> you know, do you remember we used to sing when we were, I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in, and then a little light from heaven filled my soul. You know that one? It made my heart an and wrote my name above. And just a little talk with Jesus made me whole. And then it goes on. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell him all about our troubles. He will hear our faintest cry and he will answer by and by. Now when you feel a little prayer wheel turning and you know a little fire is burning, you will find a little talk with Jesus makes you whole. What's this? You feel a little prayer wheel turning. That's all the little things in the middle of Tibet, all swinging around, all the prayers. This has been going on for years. And we all used to sing it. And look, here's another one. Here's an interesting thing. You know, <coughs> Hebrews 12, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Do you know what people believe about that? They don't believe as well as I believe and most of us would believe that these witnesses are there in chapter 11 and they are there to direct us and bring us to Jesus to show us how they live by faith how we should live by faith but people believe unbelievably that this cloud of witnesses are watching us and cheering us on listen to what this fellow said this is a guy who's writing about he's writing at the, the birthday of Charles Wesley. The writer knew that living a life of faith would be difficult. This is about Wesley. It's not necessarily what Wesley believed, but it's what these people believed about Wesley. He knew that there would be times when an individual would probably just as soon give up and take an easier path through this life. However, he reminds us that we have this cloud of witnesses pulling for us, cheering us on, helping us to keep going. These are persons who have run the race and know that life can be difficult, so they are there to support us. That's praying to the dead. He says, happy birthday, Charles. Tell all the others gathered around you in that cloud of witnesses to keep on cheering us on as we seek to follow the example that's been set for us. An example of that, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. People think those kind of things. This mysticism, you know, I was reading, look at this hymn here. You, have, you ever sing the church's one foundation in Jesus Christ? Great hymn, isn't it? Listen to what it says. But, yes, she on earth hath union with God, the three in one. Yes? And mystic sweet communion with those whose race is one. What does that mean? With all her sons and daughters who by the Father's hand led through the earth, deathly waters repose and even a mystic sweet communion with all the people who've gone before. Cheering us on. This mysticism has been there with these ancient fathers and coming through. That's a hymn based on the Apostles' Creed, which isn't right to stop it, but there we are. Listen, let's get on to Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, 16. <clears throat> Gosh. 
Let's read the first eight verses. <clears throat> Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib the Lord brought by the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice the Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord shall choose to place his name there. Thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therewith. Even the bread of affliction. Even the bread of affliction. For thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste, that thou mayest remember the day when thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt all the days of thy life. And they still do. And there shall be no leavened bread seen with thee in all thy coast seven days. Neither shall there anything of the flesh which thou sacrificest the first day at even remain all night until the morning. Thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee. But at the place, in other words, I shall sacrifice it at the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. This was at the start with the tabernacle and then eventually in Jerusalem. Thou shalt offer the Passover at even, at the going down of the sun, at the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. And thou shalt roast and eat it in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And thou shalt turn in the morning and go unto thy tents. Six days shalt thou eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord thy God. Thou shalt do no work therein. <coughs> now, we have been looking at chapter 15. And in chapter 15, there were many places and many things, and in the last few chapters actually, uh, various events which were to be observed in the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to put his name. And now here, the Passover is another one of these uh, events which were to be at the place where the Lord would choose. You were to have the Passover at home. On these occasions you were to go to the place where the Lord had decided. In this chapter, if you can read it later, there are three events, three feasts. Passover, Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, we, we speak a lot about the Passover, don't we? And so often we say that it's an antitype, it's a picture of what was coming. It's a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ. The, the Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, was picturing the descent of the Holy Spirit. And the Feast of Tabernacles, it hasn't taken place yet. It's had no fulfillment it was celebrated after the second harvest. There were two harvests in Israel. There was the first and the second. And this was celebrated after the second harvest. And Israel joyfully always commemorated uh, tabernacles. 
in the land, in the land which God had given them. Their pilgrimage before entering on the rest which God had given them in Canaan. And they commemorated when they got into the land. Thus, the fulfillment of this type will be when, after the execution of judgment, Israel restored to their land, the land of which God has already given them, and shall be in possession of all their promised blessings. And it's looking forward to that as well. Thus, the, the Feast of Tabernacles is the joy of the millennium. When Israel, having come out of the wilderness, the wilderness of their rejection and their blindness, where their sins had placed them, and still does, they're still blind. But then they will recognize and acknowledge the Lord as their Messiah. And that's still in the future. So they had those three, those three uh, feasts are in here in chapter 14. In contrast, if you look at Leviticus 23, they have all the feasts recorded there. There, there are seven feasts. We don't include the Sabbath. The Sabbath is another one. But there are seven main feasts. They are Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. But it would appear that we said before, Leviticus is the, the, a guidebook for the priests, and all the ceremonial and stuff were, were, that the priests had to perform with these various feasts. Deuteronomy, on the other hand, is really the people's book. And in, in many respects, the law, as recorded in Deuteronomy, is simpler. And so we have these three main moral and national feasts just recorded in chapter 16. And so let's look at what it has to say. Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. The Israelites were always, always to remember their redemption. Their redemption out of Egypt. The month of Abib was at the maturing of the barley harvest, the second harvest. And it was this month that there was to be a redemption. This hadn't happened yet. But there was going to be a great redemption when the first Passover took place. And Moses was reminding them about it here. The month of Abib was when you came out of Egypt. There was a harvest of souls coming out of Egypt a wonderful redemption of those who had been held in bondage a time when we saw last week Israel, God calls Israel, just to went here so I'm telling you God called Israel, the whole of Israel his firstborn when he was speaking to Pharaoh, I think in chapter 6 or 4 or 6 of, of Exodus he calls Israel my firstborn so when they came out of Egypt, 
not only where the firstborn as, as sons came out, but the whole of Israel God regarded as his firstborn coming out of Egypt. It speaks to us today of the death of Christ. Passover speaks to us of the death of Christ. The death of Christ is always to be remembered. Always to be remembered. And so Christ instituted the memorial feast, the breaking of bread and the drinking of the wine, the communion service, the breaking of bread service, the Lord's table, whatever you wish to call it. He instigated that so that we would constantly, like the Israels had to remember that coming out of Egypt, we too have to remember the death of Christ, through whom we have access to God the Father. Our Lord and Saviour, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He was the firstborn from the dead. And that in all things he might have the preeminence, and that he might be the firstborn from many brethren. And it was the firstborn Israel came out of Egypt, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So we, as the firstborn after Christ, have come out of Egypt, come out of bondage. Because of his death, we have been redeemed from the bondage of Satan. Christ as risen is the firstborn, the first fruit, and the harvest includes all those that through his death and his shed blood are also the part of that wonderful harvest. The part of that glory is it's a wonderful thought, isn't it? That we are part of a harvest produced because of the blood and death of the Lord Jesus Christ it's interesting that if you look go back to Exodus chapter 13 Exodus chapter 13 and verses 4 and 5 Exodus 13 and 4 and 5 it says this day came ye out in the month of Abel and it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land just going on which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey that thou shalt keep this service in this month the Israelites were brought out of the land and God promised that they would be brought into the land. They were brought out of bondage and into the land, the promised land. And that's important for us. In the death of Christ we have been brought out of bondage. They were brought out of bondage in Egypt. We have been brought out of bondage from the power of Satan. And we are assured that we will have an inheritance into which also we will be brought into in the future. We repeat this, this verse, we seem to repeat it quite a bit. First Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope 
by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. We've been brought out of bondage to Satan, but we've been brought in to an inheritance in heaven, incorruptible, undefined, but fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And again, in Galatians 1 verse 3, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil, evil world, brought out of this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Just as the Passover speaks of the death of Christ, so the unleavened bread. If you look at Deuteronomy again, it speaks of not having any leaven around. So the unleavened bread speaks to us of the moral exercises we have to do, which are needful for each of us to perform in order to preserve consistency in our walk with Christ. We are saved, but it doesn't stop there. What did it say there when we read, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. By Christ and his death, God takes his firstborn, you and me, out of the place of bondage, from under the control of the evil power of this world. Why? To leave us? To manage on our own? No. To be indwelt by his spirit. And to worship in liberty. As did the Israelites when they left Egypt. What was the reason God gave Moses to tell Pharaoh? They, they, they wanted to leave to go and worship their God in the wilderness you know that was the whole object it wasn't just to be relieved of the bondage in Egypt it was to go on with God and to worship God you know if you think of the most ridiculous situation to if somebody had been partaker of the Passover and the unleavened bread, and then to remain in Egypt. It would have been impossible to imagine. And yet today, we have many Christians who are quite happy to claim that they have been born again by the Spirit of God, but are prepared to stay in Egypt. Look at this passage. In verse 1, it says... The Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt. Verse 3. Thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt. Again in verse 3. Thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt. Verse 6. At the season that thou camest forth out of Egypt. They came out of Egypt. We too should come out of this world. And live separated sanctified lives the great thought of the Passover is always at the season that thou camest out of Egypt you see in many people's minds 
that isn't our salvation is something just being sheltered from judgment that seems to be the principal reason why most people believe they were saved and it's a very important one but we cannot stop there being sheltered by the blood and then staying in Egypt such a thought is completely at odds to any picture we have of the Passover it just doesn't make sense our reason was that we could come out of Egypt and worship God in liberty and that's what we should be doing when the blood was applied to the outside those inside were feeding on the thought that they were going to be redeemed through the death of the Lamb and they were ready they were had their loins girt they had sandals on their feet they had their staff on their hand they were eating the, the, the Lamb they were all ready to move redeemed people leaving bondage God had a wonderful future plan for his redeemed yes redemption but so much more and you know Peter probably had this picture of Passover in, 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 our mind, in his mind when he said for as much as ye know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your father that's going back to this ancient future thing uh, going back to the desert fathers this tradition we're not we've not been redeemed by that kind of tradition but the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was made what was manifest in these last times for you by who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God the Passover in the Old Testament was something precious to God why? I believe it was so precious to him because it was a type of what was going to happen to his son in Exodus he speaks about my sacrifice it was something very special when he was speaking about the Passover to remember the Lord the firstborn from the dead God's beloved son as he has said is also precious in his sight Peter says behold I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect precious God thought the death of his son was something precious and he that believeth in him shall not be confounded unto you therefore which believe he is precious but unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builder disallowed the same has become the head of the corner is Jesus precious to me Peter says his blood was precious now let's look for a minute at the picture we have of unleavened bread verse 3 thou shalt eat no leavened bread with it seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread therefore therewith even the bread of affliction for thou camest forth out of the land of Egypt in haste and so on two points here we have it mentioned unleavened bread and we have mentioned here also the bread of 
affliction. Now, if you turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, and verse 1, it says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. The, they didn't make any distinction, apparently, between the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days. The Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of our walk, as I said before, our holy walk before God in the world, separated from the leaven of the world. There was to be no leaven found in their houses, and they were to eat this unleavened bread for, for seven days. And this is interesting. The actual Passover meal occurred on one day. They ate the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread ran for seven days. And I think that's a very good picture we have here. New Testament saints, we read, met on the Lord's Day to remember the Lord Jesus Christ in the breaking of bread. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be eaten for seven days. And I think the picture we have here, that's the way we have to live our lives. We meet with the people of God on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday and we have communion and fellowship with them. But you know, it doesn't stop there. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days. We have to live our lives in this world, separate from the world, all during the week. The whole life we met in fellowship, had communion, but we have to live in the world seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, 300 and, uh, for, for our lifetime. You get the picture. We cannot just have communion with God on a Sunday and then live as we like, as we like for the next six days. They had to keep the feast of unleavened bread for the seven days of the week. And leaven at all times speaks obviously of sin and evil, error in the church, all of which must be avoided. Now, I have never actually heard anyone speak of the bread of affliction to my knowledge. If I did, I, I, I've forgotten. But the bread of affliction, what, do, what does it mean? The bread of affliction in even the bread of affliction. This unleavened bread, even the bread of affliction. What was this unleavened bread, the bread of affliction? The hymn says, it probably equates just before long with the bitter herbs. Same idea, the same thought, the bitter herbs, the bread of affliction, something which was not pleasant to eat. A bitter taste. The love that Jesus had for me to suffer on the cruel tree that I a ransomed soul might be is more than tongue can tell. The bitter sorrow that he bore and all oh, the crown of thorns he wore that I might live forevermore is more than tongue can tell. We come to remember Christ in his death. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair I hid my face from shame and spitting. 
Hebrews 2 verse 9 but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by grace should taste death for every man the sinless spotless son of God tasted death he was afflicted for you and for me O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, our load was laid on thee, thou stoodest in the sinner's stead, didst bear all ill for me, a victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there is no load for me, death and the curse were in that cup. O Christ, twas full for thee. In our cup, he took that cup. But thou hast drained the last dark drop, tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up, tis blessing now for me. You know, we hear too much of the lighter side of Christianity. We don't identify with Christ in the bitterness, the suffering. We don't think about it. We can't get, we can't understand the death of his suffering and his affliction. But we can realize that he was afflicted. His father turned away and Christ cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was afflicted. That bitter cup, love drank it up. The crowds were around Jesus demanding a sign. They went there for the, the, the sea miracles. They wanted a spectacle. And today we see the same type of thing. We see little of personal holiness, little of separation from the world, little of avoidance of evil or even the appearance of evil we see people prepared to compromise with churches that are so far removed from the truth joining with all sorts of humanitarian works we see people like Warren signing up with Tony Blair in his faith foundations doing things also worthy but not according to scripture can you possibly imagine the Apostle Paul joining up with a humanitarian effort to provide aid to temple prostitutes in Ephesus or Corinth? We have that article that I read there that the Pope says we shouldn't uh, have doctrine because it's divisive. What did Paul say? I beseech you, brethren, mark those that cause divisions among you and that teach doctrines which are not that you haven't received and avoid them we don't see that in churches today come out from among them and be ye separate avoid those who teach other doctrines which ye have received we see protestant churches involved in pagan labyrinths mixing with those baptizing babies and approving of sexual deviances and all together with the Roman Catholic Church with all its evil doctrines saying wrong is right and peace peace when there is no peace remember we have a high priest who is holy harmless 
undefiled, separate from sinners. We remember Christ in his death, in what he endured for me, the bitterness, the bread of affliction. And you know, when he was taken, all forsook him and fled. When Paul was in court, being tried for his life, no man stood with him. You remember Christ in his affliction. Are we prepared to eat the bread of affliction as our Lord and Master did? May God help us to do that. Why did the Israelites not remember the joy and happiness? Because there were times of joy and happiness on their journeys with God through the wilderness. Why did they not remember those times at Passover? Because it was necessary for them to be constantly reminded of their redemption and release from bondage from an evil tyrant. You know, I remember reading a book of Michelle Guinness, a Jewess, and she told, told the story of her grandfather. And her grandfather at Passover time used to sit and he would talk like we went through terrible times. We had so much worry in Egypt. We had taskmasters. And he, she said, she used to think it only happened yesterday. But he remembered the bread of affliction. And we too should remember what Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross of Calvary. And you know, the reason it was because that during that journey why did they go wrong? Why did Israel go wrong? There were times during that journey when they hankered after the garlic and the fruits of Egypt. Why? It was because, you know, when they were on that journey through the wilderness they didn't keep the Passover. They didn't keep the Passover. It wasn't constantly in their mind. So they forgot about the affliction. It was also, I believe, because they had not separated themselves from the mixed multitude. A mixed multitude had come out with them. And they hadn't separated themselves from those people. And they dragged them down. May we remember this morning as we break bread together and remember Christ's death. Remember that he was wounded for our iniquities and he was afflicted. Also remember to walk remembering the unleavened bread and the bread of affliction. Stricken, smitten and afflicted. See him dying on the tree. Tis the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Tis the long-expected prophet, David's son, yet David's Lord. Proofs I see sufficient in it. Tis a true and faithful word. Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends, through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him 
was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed, Son of Man and Son of God. Here we have a firm foundation, here the refuge of the lost, Christ the rock of our salvation, Christ the name of which we boast, Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice advice to cancel guilt, none shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. Amen.